If you turn in your Bibles this morning with me, we will be looking at a parable in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, and following all the way to verse 21. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 21. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. The scriptures read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night... Your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace once again. And just as your word has promised that it goes forth, and does not return without accomplishing its purposes, we pray that this morning that it would accomplish its purposes in our hearts and lives, that you would open our minds and grant to us understanding, just as you did the two that were on the road to Emmaus. We pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story about a man, a man who would be very much at home in our society, a man who would probably fit in. He was a venture capitalist. He was an individual who was a hard worker. He knew that the odds of running a new startup was sort of difficult. He knew that the odds were against him, but he was willing to do whatever it took to be successful. And so he worked 12 to 14-hour days. He would work on weekends. He joined professional societies. He joined a board of directors in order to expand his contacts. And even when he wasn't working, his mind was always about his work. So much so, sometimes his wife would try to remind him that he had a family. He would try to slow down, but he thought to himself, this is only for a little while. The kids would sometimes complain about the 
stories he would not read to them or the times that he wouldn't be able to play catch with them or maybe the meals that they weren't able to eat together, but they stopped complaining after a while because that's just how life was. He thought to himself, I'll be more available for my family in just six months or so when things settle down. He was a very intelligent man, although things really never settled down. Besides, he said to himself when he felt guilty, I'm really doing this for my family. One morning, though, at 1 a.m., he was awakened because he had a twinge in his heart and in his chest, and his wife called 911, and they came. He went to the hospital, and they determined that he had had a minor heart attack. They warned him he had all the classic symptoms, and he ought to change his lifestyle, so he tried to ate better, decided he was going to change his routine a little. He decided that he was going to buy all of this very expensive equipment to track all of his health issues, his percentage of body fat, everything. He recognized that life was really out of balance for him. He sometimes thought about God. He thought about the church down the street that he could have attended, but he thought to himself, well, not to worry. I can believe and not go to church. There'll be time for church when things settle down. And then one day, the CEO came, CEO of the company, and sat down with him and said that he wasn't going to believe what had happened. What had happened were things were booming to such an extent that they simply could not fulfill all of the orders that were coming in and supply could not handle the demand and their whole system was helplessly outdated and they needed someone to head up the overhaul. And if they headed up the overhaul and they weren't able to ride this wave that was coming in, that they would be set. They would be set for life, but it would require major changes. And so they needed somebody to head that up. And he thought to himself, yes, this is an opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for this startup to go successful. They set a date for the IPO and all of that, and he came home that evening to tell his wife the good news. And he said, you know what this means, don't you? Once I put us through this reorg, we can relax because our future will be assured. We'll be set for life. I know the market. I've covered every base, he said. I have anticipated every contingency. We will be financially secure, unquote. She had heard this song before, so it didn't, she didn't get her hopes up. 11 o'clock that night came. She said, I'm going up to bed. Are you coming with me? And he said, no, go ahead. I've got a little more to do. And he sat in front of his computer continuing to work. I've got a little more to do. I'll be up in a couple of minutes. You go first. So she did. She went to sleep, woke up at 3 a.m. in the morning, and he still wasn't there. So she went on downstairs and found him in front of the computer, head rested on his arm. She thought to herself, this is ridiculous. It's like a little child. He'd rather fall asleep down here than in front, in front of the screen than come up to bed. So she put her hand on his shoulder and tried to wake him, and he was cold to the touch. She tried to wake him, and he would not respond, and she had a panicky feeling, and she called 911. By the time the paramedics got there, he had already been dead. They had determined he had a massive heart attack. He had been dead for hours. 
His story was written up in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes magazine. It's too bad that he had passed. He would have loved to read some of the things they had written about him. When they had the memorial service, he was very much lauded. He was so prominent. The whole community was there. People would file by his casket, and they would say he looked so peaceful. He was one of the leading entrepreneurs of the day. He was a man of principles. He was a straight arrow. He'd never cheat on his taxes. He'd never cheat on his expense account. He'd never cheat on his wife. Someone else noted all of his civic achievements because he was a pillar in the community. He knew everyone. He was a networker, and they had all sorts of words that were inspiring to say about him. A leader, an innovator, an entrepreneur, a visionary, a success. Because that's what he really strove for. Success. They buried his body, they put up a marker, and they all went home. But the story goes that when no one was present to see, when no one was present to hear, that the angel of God came to that cemetery and he walked by that marker and with a single word wrote a word that described him. And it was fool. Fool. That's just like this story right here. This story in which Jesus tells of a rich, successful individual who had thought that he had covered every contingency, who thought that he had covered all the bases, who had thought of all the permutations of how his life might turn out, except he forgot the one thing that everyone will face, and that was death, that he would die. God stands amazed, probably, at the things that, well, even though nothing surprises God, that, well people don't consider that they will die at any time, that life is short, that we will all go to the grave. And in Luke chapter 12, he brings about a parable that warns us against greed, being rich towards ourselves and not towards God. He had just begun in chapter 12 talking about how we ought to be careful about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. He had completed talking about how people were valuable in God's sight. He had completed talking about people who would be afraid to profess Jesus before others. But there was a man in the crowd. All of those spiritual lessons that he was teaching, all of those important things that he was warning about, all of those truths that he was communicating, this man had his had his own agenda. He had been thinking about this issue that had consumed his mind. And the issue was this, in verse 13, he said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me, verse 13. Here's a man who had just simply, perhaps just glossed over all of the important things that Jesus was talking about, and he was concerned about his inheritance. He did address Jesus properly. He called him teacher. He recognized Jesus as a rabbi, which was a customary thing. And rabbis in those days would, would adjudicate civil issues, family issues. They would see a rabbi there if you had a family squabble and wanted somebody to, to be a referee and declare who was right. Well, you'd run up to a rabbi and you'd have him settle your problem. 
But this man, he already had a verdict, and he wanted Jesus to declare that he was right, and he wanted Jesus to declare that his brother needed to give him his inheritance. He didn't really want some sort of arbitration. He wanted Jesus to command his brother, who was probably there in the crowd, to tell him to give him his share. We don't know if this man's case was legitimate or not. We didn't know if he was right or not. And Jesus doesn't address this man's physical problem with his brother, his material problem with his brother. He says, man which is simply like saying, Mr., who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, it wasn't that Jesus is not going to judge. He is, but he wasn't going to judge these mundane, earthly, worldly things. As one commentator says, he came to bring men to God, not to bring property to men. So Jesus gives them a parable. Jesus gives him a parable, and he speaks to all of us in this parable. And since we'll be covering a number of parables in the coming weeks, I thought I would give you a few guidelines as we look at parables and their interpretation. When we look at parables in the Bible, it's important to understand how we go about interpreting these parables. And there are a number of principles that we follow in order to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. A parable, by the way, is, 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 is an illustration. It's an illustration that is given, an analogy that is given, that's cast alongside of a spiritual truth. That's what the word means, to cast alongside of. It's an illustration in order that we might understand a spiritual truth. One of the principles in understanding parables as we will be looking at them in the coming weeks is to understand, first of all, that parables in the Bible are true-to-life illustrations. They are true-to-life illustrations, or they're set in reality. He uses true-to-life experiences of people. He uses true-to-life backgrounds, cultural, etc. In other words, you're not going to find a parable in the Bible that has a, a unicorn, or a parable in the Bible that has some sort of a green beanstalk that goes to heaven and a green giant in heaven. You're not going to find a parable about a, a yellow tic-tac that wears the overalls and has a goggle on his forehead. Those are fantasy. Those are fictitious in terms of cartoons. You will not find that because parables are true to life, set in reality illustrations. Secondly, the natural meaning of a parable is the plain meaning. It's given there, and it's plainly seen in many cases. Sometimes it's even interpreted for you by Jesus. It's given in its normal, grammatical, historical sense. They're illustrations. In other words, they're not some sort of mystical idea. They're not some sort of strange or eccentric illustration where you're trying to find out the hidden meaning behind everything that is in the parable. And that leads us to another principle as we look at parables, that Jesus gives parables in order to answer a question or in order to solve some problem that somebody's having or in order to address a particular situation or communicate a principle. And so when we look at an illustration that is given, we find out from its context what was the reason why Jesus told that parable. What is the situation that prompts Jesus to give this particular parable or a situation? And here it's easy to see. This man has a problem. 
This man has a problem. Or even in Luke chapter 10, an expert in the law comes and asks Jesus. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives, asks him a, man, a question back, and he asks, who is my neighbor? Because it, later on, of course, he will say in his response prior to that, that you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives them the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we see that parables are given in response to a question or situation, or maybe Jesus is trying to teach a particular thematic truth, such as in Matthew chapter 13, when he teaches about the kingdom of God, you'll find each of the parables begins with, a king, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, and all those parables have to do with the kingdom of God. So... Parables are true-to-life illustrations. Parables have a natural or plain meaning as we read through the text. There is not some sort of mysticism or strange, eccentric idea behind them. Parables are often given to answer some question or solve some problem or whatever it may be. Fourthly, parables have a singular truth. They have a main point to the parable. And this flows along with the idea that Jesus is trying to illustrate some truth or some principle or answer some question, there's a singular meaning in the parable that is given. There are not multiple kind of unrelated meanings. And sometimes these are explained to us, like I mentioned, the parable of the sower and the seed. Jesus gives the, gives the meaning of the parable. Many applications, but a singular truth. Fifthly, a parable that is given by Jesus himself, well, there are Sometimes an interpretation that is just given for you already. Jesus interprets the sower and the seed. He interprets for you the meanings of each of the soils so that we'll understand what it means. And lastly, sometimes the response of the audience. The response of the audience gives, a, it gives us a hint to the meaning of the parable. As Jesus is trying to solicit a response from the hearers that will guide us to understand what it means. And here in this particular context, the theme of the parable or the idea behind the parable is Jesus' warning here against greed, against greed, particularly when we are greedy, and it says in the very end, verse 21, so too is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. As much as greed might be as selfish for oneself and not towards others, it is particularly that which is rich towards ourselves and not rich towards God. Greed is the word meaning the thirst for having more. And so here he is talking about the subject of greed. It is not a parable about those who have a lot and those who have a little. It says very clearly, be, be on your guard, beware. Be on your guard against every form of greed. You can be greedy if you have a lot. You can be greedy if you have a little. I remember when we were in Africa, our missions team had, had, had sponsored a lunch for hundreds of, of children. And the hundreds of children in this particular uh, internally displaced people's camp, it was a camp that had... Uh, many, many kids, and, uh, and this meal that we would sponsor for them was probably going to be the meal that they would have that day. That would probably be all that they would eat, and primarily it was beans and rice or some type of, of mashed uh, vegetable and rice. But the thing that was a real treat was 
that each child would receive one small piece of meat, which was very, very unusual for them because meat was expensive. And I remember that after the food was served to them and we were doing something else, we turned around because there was all this yelling and screaming and all of these children were running towards the water. And I've asked what they were doing and why they were running. And apparently, one child had become very greedy and taken another child's piece of meat. And all the other children were chasing after them. You can have very little and yet have greed that leads to theft. The parable pre pre presents these, these, the situation where a man has much. He has much, and he displays a greediness in his own heart. And it presents to us some very practical reminders, some very practical reminders from this man's life and from this man's thoughts. And the reminders are listed there for you in the sermon outline that we are to recognize everything we have is from God that we are to be unselfish in our thoughts of God and others first, and we are to be generous and giving towards the Lord, not greedy. The first is that everything we have is given by God. Verse 16, here was a man who in the world's eyes would have been a success, much like the entrepreneur. He had all that his soul could want. Anything that he wanted in his heart, he could buy. But his success wasn't because of his own ingenuity. Verse 16 tells him a parable. The land of the rich man was very productive. The land of this rich man was very productive. The man could have been a lazy man. The man could have been a proud man. He could have been a swindler. He could have been a cheapskate. We don't know. And whatever the case was, the man's character or work ethic didn't make the land productive. The land was productive because God had provided there could have been a flood, there could have been a storm, there could have been hail that would have destroyed his crops, but it's not ultimately up to him. The land was productive. Wealth is given by God. And that is how we are to see our possessions, that they are from God, they're given by God. God owns everything that we have. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, Psalm 24.1 tells us. The world and those who dwell in it, and that means everything. Even us, the world and all who dwell in it belong to God. Some people look at it wrongly and they think, well, I make X amount. This part is God's. The rest is mine. No, all of it belongs to God. We're not entitled to our job. We're not entitled to wealth. We're not entitled to a family. We're not entitled to good health. No, all these things are given to us by the grace of God. This man's wealth was given to him by God, but he didn't recognize that. We need to recognize that everything we have is given to us by God. We are merely stewards. We're merely managers. And how we handle what God has given to us is going to tell a lot about our hearts. It is a very common theme about how we handle what God has given to us, how we handle particularly when it comes to money and the subject of earthly treasures. In fact, 16 out of the 38 parables, almost half of all the parables, Jesus speaks on the subject of how we handle earthly treasures. 
And one out of every 10 verses in the gospel is in, on the subject of stewardship. And he spoke on the subject of stewardship, of being a good steward, more about being a good steward than about heaven and hell combined. That is how prominent it is in the New Testament. To be a good steward, we begin by recognizing that everything we have, our strength, our health, our abilities, our gifts, our possessions are all by the grace of God. They're all owned by God. We're merely managers of what God has granted to us. Secondly, we are to unselfishly think of God and others. We're to unselfishly think of God and others. This man was a selfish, self-centered man who really thought highly of himself. And in this parable, he only thought of himself. Look at how many times in verse 17 to 19, he uses the words, I and my. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have laid up goods for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man thought like a selfish child. His first and only thought really about himself. He thinks of his own security. He thinks of his own possessions. He thinks of his own barns. He thinks of all of his own crops. He's, his thoughts are not God-oriented. He's not thinking about what can I do with what I have for God. He doesn't think about God's crops. No, he's thinking about I, me, my. This is what I have. This belongs to me. Is that how you think? Are your first thoughts about what you like, what you want, what you have, what benefits will you get? Or are you thinking about how can I use what God has granted to me to love God, to bless others, to bring others into the kingdom? What would others say about you, how you use your time, your life, the things that you own? Would they say that you characterize a person who is self-sacrificial, who lives a life of self-denial or generous, unselfish towards others? We all have so much stuff, don't we, that collect. In an Atlanta Journal-Constitution written by a, a man named Jim, the writer-author, he quotes a comedian who says, quote, the essence of life is trying to find a place to put all your stuff, unquote. That's how consumed some people are. Some people spend so much of their time trying to figure out where to put, organize, and stack all of their stuff. He writes that there are 32,000 self-storage businesses nationwide. 32,000 self, those are those public storage, those orange public storage and other pub, pub, public storage spaces. 620 in Atlanta alone, which is twice as many as 10 years ago. 100 million storage containers are sold by Rubbermaid every year. And I probably add to that number. The stuff, all of this stuff that Americans have, have generated a new profession you can become a professional organizer. And professional organizers can make up to $100 an hour. 
helping you to organize your things so that you can get more organized. There's even TV shows, you know, about hoarders and those who have so much stuff they can barely walk into their own home. People fight to buy, to consume, and the temptation is there to have bigger and bigger barns, and when you have a bigger barn or silo, you buy a bigger one. It's interesting. Statistics are that the size of homes have increased while the size of families have decreased. We keep all sorts of stuff, and in some ways, we might be like this man. For many people, it's tempting to think, if only, if only... We walk to our car and think, if only I had a newer car, walk to our house, if only I had a bigger house, if only I had a nicer job, if only I had more of this or more of that, if only I made a little bit more money. The Bible tells us to be content with what we have, not to be a greedy hoarder. It's better to be content than to accumulate, to be rich towards God than rich towards oneself. Matthew chapter 6 speaks of this in a couple of books back. If you turn in Matthew chapter 6, we look at a passage in verse 19 through 21. Jesus speaks very directly to this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, (coughs) tells us there in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves Break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You ever think about that last phrase? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you were to invest in the market and buy a significant number of shares of a particular company, you were to invest in some real estate, or you were to give money for a new business, what happens? If there's big news in the news about that company, you know what, you're going to read that news. If the real estate market suddenly tanks, you're going to be concerned and you'll find out what's going on in the market there. Or if a business is going well or not going well, you're going to keep tabs on that. Why? Because that's where your money is. Six months ago, you might not have even cared about what that company was doing because you're not vested in that company. But if you're invested in some sort of business or investment, that's where your mind goes. That's what you'll be reading about. That's what you'll keep tabs on in the news. Maybe you even have that on your stock ticker. It comes up on the news on your website. I don't know. Maybe if you've invested in something else, in the eradication of of malaria in some Southeast Asian country, well, you're going to want to find out the statistics of how that's progressing. And likewise, if you've decided you're going to invest a significant number of funds to a church planting venture in India or in South Africa, you're going to find out what the news is. And when you hear of a civil uprising or some sort of government crackdown, Suddenly, your mind and your interest peaks because you have a vested interest in that area of the world. That's what happens. Where your money is and your investment is, that's where your heart will go. That's where your interest will lie. That's where your thoughts will go. So ask yourself, what sort of news peaks my interest? What sort of news peaks my interest? 
Maybe that's where your heart is. News about ministry, news about missions, news about some venture to a new company, news about a church plant, or news about relief work. What piques your interest? What really grabs your attention when you think about what you've invested in? Paul reminds in us in Colossians 3, 1 to 3, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How do we set our minds on the things above so much more easily? Invest in the things that matter for eternity. Invest and take what you have, your time, your energy, your strength, your finances, and invest them in things that will matter for the things of God. And then your mind will follow. Your heart will follow. What are the things above, the things on the earth? Ask yourself that. You'll find out where your heart is. Number one, recognize everything comes from God. Secondly, unselfishly think of God and others. And thirdly, be rich toward God and not greedy. Be rich toward God and not greedy. God said to him, verse 20, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man placed his energy and his strength, his security in what he had. He placed his strength and security in his wealth. His thought was probably like many, like many. I've worked hard all my life. I'll be set. I'll just continue on, and then I can take, kick back and enjoy the rest of my life. All this time he's invested in a dream that would never come because he lost it all because he lost his life. Solomon writes about that. Solomon writes about the futility of working hard all of his life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Thus I hated, I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. All that Solomon had worked for, he had accumulated all of this, and he knew he could not take it with him. It would not go with him. He would never be able to leave it to the man who would come behind him. And who knows if that man would be responsible or foolish. This man here, he aimed to store up all of his earthly treasure for himself and was not rich toward God. Many people believe the same thing this man believed. He believed having more for myself will make me more happy. Commercials and advertisements often say, you need this, you need that. And this man was probably fulfilling many might call the American dream, invest in yourself so you'll have enough of a nest egg, you're set for life. You can retire, you can relax, you can enjoy life, you can tell your own soul this very thing. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Come, take your ease, eat, drink, enjoy yourself, relax, be happy, go to the Bahamas, don't worry. Sounds like a financial advisor that might be at whatever place you might find. 
He's not going to say or she is not going to say, look, while you've been saving for the future, which is wise, don't forget to be generous towards God. Don't forget about investing in true riches, by the way. And while you're looking at that, don't forget to give generously, give faithfully, use your time, use your resources for things that really will matter because this nest egg, it could go up and down. You know, past performance doesn't guarantee anything. And while you're investing in this fund, don't forget to invest in God's people, winning souls for Jesus, because that's where the real returns take place. They're not going to tell you anything of that sort. No, you won't hear that. Charles Schwab won't tell you that. Your banker won't tell you that. Their job is to tell you how much you need if you're going to want to live at a certain level. Invest in yourself. That's the whole inclination. Invest so that you'll be comfortable. God says, one who simply has that perspective is a fool. Invest in eternity because you don't know if you'll live tomorrow. Because when your day comes and you die, God's evaluation of your success in life isn't going to be measured by your grades, isn't going to be measured by your wealth, isn't going to be measured by your popularity or power, isn't going to be measured by how well you were written up in Forbes magazine or the Wall Street Journal. God's evaluation of your life is going to be how rich you were towards God and your attitude towards those things that He has granted to you. All of these things are by the grace of God. And there are those who have not been rich towards God. Those will be called fools. Because there's an illusion that is often painted in front of us. And the illusion is having more will bring you happiness and satisfaction and security. It's easy for us to presume, to presume upon God, to say, I believe I will live. I will live longer, healthier than I know. I'll serve later on. I'll give later on. I'll invest in things later on. But right now, I've got to make more money for myself, my family. And God says, you don't know when your life may end. You don't know how long you will live. You don't know any of those things. So we recognize that everything comes from God. We're to unselfishly think of God and others, and we're to be rich towards God and not greedy. A number of years ago, there were some construction workers. They're construction workers who were laying a foundation for a new building. And it was outside of Pompeii. Many of you know Pompeii. There was a, it's not far from Mount Vesuvius, and it had an eruption, and Pompeii was buried, buried in ash and debris. They found that as they were digging, they found the corpse of a woman, and she must have fleeing the been fleeing the eruption, but she was caught in, in the hot ashes, and she was buried, and she died. But they found something interesting, because within this woman's hands, she was clutching these jewels, these jewels which were preserved and in excellent condition. She had these jewels, but she couldn't take them with her. Death had stolen them all. The bottom line is that worldly treasure can't be taken with you. It isn't a wise investment, which Jim Elliott, a missionary, once wrote, a person is no fool. A person is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. 
He's no fool who gives up what he can't keep in order to gain what he can't lose. I hope that's our heart's desire, that we truly were able to say, just as we've sung, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Who cares what the world may say about what success is, because success is, what are you doing with your life in faithfulness to God, by the grace of God, that you might invest in the things of God for all of eternity? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have all been given more than we deserve. You've given us life and breath, energy, spiritual gifts, and worldly wealth. And I pray, God, that we might be found to be good stewards because you own it all. All of these things belong to you and we're simply managers, O God, of what you have granted to us so generously. And yet, Father, so frequently we fail and we think more of ourselves than we think of what we can do with what you have granted, that we might use it for your glory, the winning of souls to the Savior for eternal purposes we desire. May that be our heart's cry. In Jesus' name, amen.